Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, May the 10th, 2023. Anyone in the publishing business, the book business knows it's not talent that wins, it's timing that wins. You've got to be there before everybody else, but you've got to be there before everybody else, uh, not too early. It's rather like doing a startup. My uh, guest today, Stephen Marsh, is he's a master of many things, but I think above all else, he's a master of timing. Um, he was one of the first people to write about the looming civil war in the United States. He's been on the show a couple of times back in 2021 and in 2022, talking about a potential civil war in America. And he had a big hit book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. I'm not sure if he was right or wrong, uh, but the timing was good. And earlier this year, he had another good book, uh, another perfect perfectly timed book. Uh, All Writing is Failure, uh, On Writing and Failure, a book out. And it's particularly appropriate given the timing that everyone's increasingly thinking of writing as um, an anachronism, given that we've taught computers with chat GPT to outwrite us, uh, to make writers redundant. Writers seem to be on the front lines of this new AI revolution. But Stephen Marsh is, as always, one step ahead of everyone else, having written about writing and failure. Now he's written the first AI book. It's called A Novella, Death of an Author. It's by somebody called Aidan Marchand. Uh, But Stephen Marsh is, of course, the creator of this. He's the genius behind the book. And he's joining us from Canada, where he plots his next step. Stephen, I'm not going to ask you what you're going to do next because I won't, I'm sure you won't reveal because you're always one step ahead of everybody else. Uh, tell me about this book, Death of an Author. I've called you the creator. You're not actually the writer, are you? Well, it's a very kind of hard situation to describe. I mean, with a lot of things in AI, we don't really have the right words for it. I mean, I would say I've never worked on anything where the misnomers come so fast and furious. I mean, even artificial intelligence is really a poor name for what we actually are dealing with. But the creator, I'm 100% in control of this product, but 95% of the words were not generated by me, right? So that's... It's ironic, Stephen, isn't it? You say, this is a revolution about language and about words, and yet we're missing... As you say, the I, right words to describe who you are, who Aidan Marchand yeah. is, and who we or uh, our audience, uh, are the readers are in all this. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to, when I was interviewing a, a vice president of Google who was responsible for Palm, their large language model, and in their PR stuff, they said it's capable of, you know, something, something understanding. And I pressed him and I was like, look, you know, you know that this is not understanding. You know that this is just text prediction. And he said to me, um, well, you know, when you say to it, write something in Bengali, it knows what Bengali means. So that's what we mean by understanding. (laughs) What other word are we supposed to use? And now I find myself in exactly the same position where it's like, well, I'm not sure what, like, 
the term author, like I am the creator of this, which is, and it's a literary product, which of course is how we tend to think of an author. Um, but on the other hand, I'm not the maker of the words, which is also how we, you know, which would be also be a definition of the word author. So it's, I mean, when you understand what the process is, I think it makes sense. But finding the technical term for it, I think, is is actually a challenge at this point. The French came up with it. I don't like to always acknowledge the French, but they came up with this before we did. Um, Bath, the, the the French literary yeah. critic, uh, wrote a book called Death of an Author, in which he wasn't a technological futurist, but he sort of predicted what was going to happen, didn't he? Even if it wasn't in terms of AI itself formally. And I know you don't like that term, but I can't think of a better one. Well, I think he what he understood in a way that is so important for this moment, although it's completely lost in all discussion of it, is that what 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 counts where where the where the meaning of a work resides is not in the origination point or the like the the myth of the romanticized creator but in its reception and in its in its recognition of its meaning by audiences and you know that is um like that's what he meant by death of an author i mean he meant we're not going to have these romantic associations with literary criticism we're going to have understandings of how texts form their meanings in groups outside quite outside of the author's intentions or anything else as has you know always been true and also i mean his point was that no author is ever um a really stable identity right like that you can't like if you're trying to define in real terms what constitutes like i think his example was nietzsche like it's it's almost impossible to do do you count the notes and books do you count you know, like, you know, grocery lists that he wrote. Do you count, like, or do you only count the major books or do you count books he turned away from? Or, you know, it, so, it, like, the, the, it, his attempt was to deal with a critical a critical approach that sort of elided all of those problems. But, you know, actually, that's very useful in thinking through the current moment, for sure. Yeah, and the current moment, when I was thinking about what you're doing and what's happening in a broader cultural context, and we always seem to, there are two dominant subjects these days for books and discussion. One is AI and um, and the stuff we've just been talking about. And the other are the cultural wars about interpretation and who says what and why they say yep. what, race, gender, sexuality, blah, blah, blah. And the more I think about it, the more you're suggesting that they're actually bound up with one another. It's no coincidence that these debates are, ha are happening simultaneously. Well, um, yes, like the, the I, I would say that AI is the exact opposite of any identity politics construction because it's not it has no identity. Right. And it, but yeah, but it can be programmed. So it does exactly what we accuse all the authors yeah. are doing. Well, more importantly, the AI is inherently racist and sexist, right? Like AI is um, like AI, like the critique of AI that has sort of disappeared in the miasma of like artificial general intelligence and the worry about it taking over the world, which is all nonsense, is that, you know, the, like the language that we speak um, contains an enormous amount of violence in it. And the large language models absolutely... Um, um, c c continue that 
violence, except when they're tr when it's trained out of them. I mean, the secret of ChatGPT is not really its incredible processing power, although that is incredible, but that they figured out a way to give it guardrails so that you couldn't make it do such horrible stuff that it was offensive to everyone, which is, you know, the problem that had really plagued uh, large language models of all kinds beforehand. Right. But that that regulation of by by them is done entirely on an ad hoc basis. Right. It's not it, it, it's just controlling the outcomes. It's not actually changing the, the nature of language itself. But that said, I mean, I think one of the things about AI art is that it is absolutely removed from questions of identity. Right. Like if you make stuff with this art, um, you know, you, it is not it is accessing the sum total of the language rather than and, and with, with all of the historical burdens that that brings with it rather than you know one particular point of view and it also ends the argument ultimately it, it will end the argument because there will be algorithms that will be able to reveal the biases of algorithms in other words every algorithm can be a critique of another one let's talk about more i mean it's a really interesting subject but let's talk about the book if if sure. if indeed we call it a book um it was um it was oh, it's uh, a book. inspired by Pushkin. Tell me about how you came up with it or how, um, how it arose, because there's an interesting story behind it. Well, Jacob Weisberg um, called me in January and said, hey, do you want to, I mean, what he actually said to me is, do you want to create an artificial intelligence that will write a novel and then we'll publish it? And I sort of said to him, well, you can't really do that. Like, that's not really how it works, but we can definitely do an AI generated novel. I've been experimenting with th these things since about 2017. So I'd worked with, um, I, you know, I wrote a story for Wired. It was an algorithmically derived story. And I'd written a 17% computer generated horror story for the LA Review of Books in, I think it was 2020. And then I wrote, a, I, I trained with Cohere I trained these bots on various style, uh, various styles like Thomas Brown and Virginia Woolf, and then had it write, each of them write like a sentence of a love story to get what I called an auto-tuned love story. So I knew how to do this, right? Like I knew how to, I, I knew how to apply this, but of course the scale of this project was so much larger that it required basically a different, a different aesthetic process. But that the origin point is like, okay, let's try and make, an AI generated story, not only that's good, but also that's um, compulsively readable. Because, you know, the experiments that I'd done, that other po the poets had done, that other writers had done, had been lyrical, right? They'd been of a lyrical nature. And that, that's sort of a, um, that's sort of easier to do with this computer, with, with algorithms. Like uh, the question was, could you make something that actually functioned as so a- Why didn't you do a kind of a Doris Lessing and just kind of lie about it and, and, and claim it was by you? Well, I mean, I like, I think I, we're in, I'm interested, this is straight literary experimentation, really. I mean, that's what this is. This is like, like and, and you know, um, when people have reactions that are not positive to it, um, I, I think that's okay. Although the reactions have been actually really most. Yeah, I mean, even positive. the New York Times, the uh, yeah Catholic of Catholic newspapers, uh, called uh, halfway uh, readable. Which yeah, I'll halfway take. readable, which is a true. I, I think I'm sure we should all take as a great compliment. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, but you know, the guy, the guys are wired, love it. You know, and Slate, you know, who's a 
Laura Miller, I mean, she's a pretty straight reviewer. Like she was like, you know, yeah. this is pretty Although good. She re- so- it seems to me that she, um, she read it in the wrong way. She says um, it's pretty good. I mean, that's not really the issue of whether or not it's good, is it? Oh, I think so. Because, I mean, the question is really, like, the reason that it took me, my work, this work is very, you know, there are lots of computer-generated novels that you could buy on Amazon that are just garbage, right? That are just, like, dog food. And, you know, no one, there's no point in that. There's no point in using this tech to mass-generate a bunch of crap novels because the truth is human beings are already doing it. Right. There's no lack of like garbage text out there if you want to read it. So that's not going to be the artistic function of of this material. Right. And and, and, and of this technology, rather. Like so, I, you know, I um, the, it was absolutely essential for us to be uh, good, like to be to be like quite good and to see if it could be excellent. And so, you know, that I mean, that is absolutely part of the experiment. But it doesn't. Yeah, you you. um you never seem to be surprised even by anything. And, and none of this surprised you, your conclusion. You wrote about it in The Atlantic, uh, that creative AI is going to change everything and nothing. It simply confirmed what you already thought, didn't it? Well, it, I mean, I definitely saw things when I was doing this that I did not expect to see, right? And I, and I definitely saw, um, I saw possibilities open that I did not know existed. And I, like I saw there was, there was a definitely a distinct aesthetic experience that I've never experienced writing anything before. And those are very powerful moments. Um, Also what became very, I mean, you know, when you use this tech for like two months, like the WGA in the Hollywood strike saying they're worried about AI, like take, like having this be part of the fight with. Yeah. uh, they are. I mean, it's like, you, you know, what I wrote, this book, is not plagiarism. Like, it just is not. Like, if you saw how it was written and you understood what was going on, you would know that it's not plagiarism. And then the other thing is, like, this is if some executive thinks they're going to go to GPT-4 and say, write me John Wick 5, like, it's just not going to happen. Like, that's not how, like, there's, there's absolutely no way that that is a future. For, within the limits of the text as I see it now. Right. Like within like who knows what the future will bring. But, you know, these machines are incredibly poor at plot. They're um, they have real serious limitations when it comes. Yeah. Although it's interesting. You mentioned write me John Wick five. You note about John Wick four in in your Atlantic piece. It's not very intelligent. All it is is people fighting up and down stairs and there isn't a lot of intellectual content. So why isn't it capable of writing John Wick five? Well, John Wick 5 is maybe a bad example since John Wick 4, you know, probably could have been written by a computer. Like, it, I mean, it definitely well, isn't that the dialogue, point. I mean, the dialogue is pretty. Did you pretty get dragged deep. by your kids to that or did you choose to go? Um, at 50 50. I mean, like, I, a kid did take me. Uh, my daughter hand, loves John Wick. I don't know why. You don't like John Wick? Well, I like it as much or as little as all the other garbage she drags me to. Well, this is, this, I mean, it was so long, this one. But like, but you know, I mean, that was he's my better point. looking than some of the other guys. And he seems sort of, he seems he's sort of, he seems as if he's almost in on the joke. I mean, that that is definitely reading. I mean, you know, there are cool stunts. I just think like a cool stunt should really last to me like five minutes most, not, you know, 35 minutes. But you know, it, it doesn't matter because, like, they they can't, they absolutely can't use a computer to write 
like the beats of that anyway. So it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't really, and also like, I think one of the things that I bring up in the afterwards of the book is like, we're already in an extremely formulaic age creatively, right? Yeah, like, I mean, already, that's the point. So what, you yeah. know, all these people, all this hysteria, I mean, most, I've had people on the show saying, oh, well, we're going to lose all the creativity, but it doesn't seem to be a lot of it. I mean, what would happen if, uh, a really good writer, a Margaret Atwood, or a, got hold of this. Could they make their work better? Well, you—you—that's what you got with *Death of an Author*. I mean, I think it. Oh, you're comparing yourself with Margaret Atwood. Well, no, but I'm, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I, I, you know, I'm a novelist who's written books, like you know, the old-fashioned way, the hard way, and like you know, it adds something, but it also has limits. Right. So and what did it do? So, so two things here. Um, firstly, what did it do that surprised you? You said you were surprised by some stuff. And secondly, how did it make Stephen Marsh a better writer, the product, a better? What it is incredible at doing, like truly incredible, is imitating forms of speech. So like if you ask it to write something in the form of like, an article from a Lacanian psychology professor from 1973, it will do, it will imitate that style to AT. I mean, to the, to the, to the, like no, no human writer could ever get close to that imitation. Right. right. Um, so that was, that's what it's really good at. What it's really bad at is, you know, the most basic things like coming up with an interesting story or, or an original story. Like it's not, it, it it's not capable of that in my opinion. Like, it's not capable of doing that in a good way. Like, I, I've tried it a bunch of different ways, and I just have not, I just have not seen that happen with this technology. But then there's the other things where you're working and, you know, you're, you, you're asking it to do things, and then it does something, it pushes it in a slightly different direction, and it, you feel it growing in a way, the text growing in a way that you would not have got to, and that you, and that is coming from, the machine and it feels like you're talking like an alien is communicating with you is what it actually feels like now that was not every day that i worked on this that was maybe 20 or 30 times during the process of writing that book but those moments were pretty pretty awesome in the old sense of that word like it, and is I, that I, a I different of, feeling from thinking about your own creativity oh yeah completely different. I mean, you just have sentences that are, that I would never write, that, that I would never come up with coming up, right? And being good and, and me recognizing their meaning and power. Yeah, yeah. It's very much a different experience for sure. So in a way, I mean, you're, I called you, um, I mean, you're not the author, you know, you're the creator. Yeah. In a way, the, the future then suggests that we're all going to, if, if we want to write professionally or even in a, in a competent way we got to be not just writers but editors and creators producers the full gamut well i think you know what how i think of it is being like a hip-hop producer or a right. curator right like in and, and it requires slightly different skills like it require like you know when you when you when you do hip-hop you don't need to play a guitar Right. Like you don't need to be able to play guitar or make a guitar speak. But on the other hand, 
you absolutely need to know the entire history of music and you have to know how to sample it and you have to know the technology and you have to be able to fit it together in a meaningful way. And it's not any less creative or any less hard work than playing a guitar, right? And it's not anything that requires less talent. Like it's it, like it's, it's very much a, a process that requires talent. So it's, you know, it, it's a similar, it's a similar process. Uh, it, it, well, rather it's a very different process but ultimately, like the impulse that it comes from and the recognition that it requires at the end are both the same as any piece of writing. So it, it's an interesting, you call it derivative art. That's what defines yeah. it. I mean, hip hop, and we've done some shows on hip hop, uh, hip hop beat chat GPT to it. Where does hip hop come from? How come hip hop well, you know, came hip before? We came, came, we came up with cool hip-hop before Herc. we came up with chat GPT. Well, you know, hip-hop was DJ Cool Herc in 1973, uh, not being allowed into the discos downtown. So in the Bronx, he takes out two turntables and a microphone, and, and he recognizes that what the crowd wants is the same break from a beat repeated over and over again. So he gets two records and he plays and he just samples the beat and he replays it over and over again so that the kids can dance to it. And that is, in a sense, the most derivative thing that you could possibly do. You're literally playing the same beat over and over again. On the other hand, the explosive creativity that comes from that, the, it, like the, the, the new musical form that is born from that and from that combination of cre technological savvy, like understanding how to use the technology, but also understanding what a good beat is and 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 how people want it and being able to respond to the audience um that's that is hugely creative and is in fact probably the most original creative act of the second half of the 20th century right so like like it's i think we're in a similar moment here so i mean hip-hop's one example but also the camera was an example right where where people like they they fear this technology they they think it's going to replace everything, but actually it just becomes a new venue for creativity, and it becomes a new and it becomes the source of a new kind of creativity. And I think you know what we're trying to do, what Jake and I were trying to do is like show one possible way that this can go, right? And like and go down one particular avenue, but you know there's going to be others. I saw it came with a nice review from uh, a nice blurb from Malcolm Gladwell, who, of course, is part yeah. of Pushkin. Is that a was that the real Malcolm Gladwell or the machine version? I, I machine generated it and I machine generated a few so that he would have a choice. Like I machine generated one that was Malcolm Gladwell speaks effusively. Uh, Malcolm Gossett speaks because he's obligated to uh, like a bunch and he could choose for one, that one. So I machine generated them and then he chose that one. And uh, what did that teach you in terms of what we like and don't like about this? Well, a blurb, a blurb, a book blurb is exactly what ChatGPT can do. I mean, that is formulaic speech, right? Like they can, it, it's incredible at that. Like it, it can write a book blurb that's just better than anyone's, right? Like it just, that, because they're so formulaic, right? And like, like what, but also, I mean, you know, you just like we wanted to do everything that we possibly could. And also importantly, we weren't going to do things just because they were AI, right? Like looking, getting it to write a book blurb, amazing. Get it to do it. Getting it to record anything. I mean, there's a lot of talk about audio and like that it's going to replace, um, 
readers. But I have to tell you, I mean, I just did not encounter a technology that I would use that I would consider superior to a human reader for an hour and a half. Like some things that work for a minute here or there, but like if you it, like something that you that you're gonna ask people to listen to for like over an hour, it better be good. And you know, like Eduardo Bellarini, like you know, at the New Yorker called him the voice of God. Like no no machine is remotely close to what he can do. Like no one. I'm not worried for his job at all. So are you worried for mine? No, not that I no, have a I job. Mean, because the it, it's the the human intentionality is not going away, right? Like when people, like what people go to for basic information, that is probably going to be largely handled by check. Although, you know, it hallucinates. So, it, you know, it's not particularly reliable. Um, you know, it'll always be, it'll always have to be supervised by someone, right? Like no, no one is just going to trust, you know, the only sites that can use ChatGPT to do news are disinformation sites. Right, are sites that don't care about the accuracy of what they say, right? So, the, like that is a that is a pretty limited use case for this. And I, I think similarly, I think um, you know, like a lot of like a lot of things that it, it it can be used for are are sort of limited. Tell me about this term uh, heteroglossia. Um, yeah, uh, another sophisticated, obscure literary theorist, Mikhail Vaktin, a Russian theorist, he came yeah. up with this term. It seems sort of weird, surreal, that all these literary theorists who everyone made fun of at the time now seem to be being proven right. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I want to write a piece actually about how, like, the way to think through all of this is through literary terms. Like there's there's actually no other way to think about it, but people actually are, have edu have stopped educating themselves in humanistic values, so they don't actually know what's going on because you know they don't know who Roland Barthes is, they don't know who Mikhail Bakhtin is anymore, and they don't they don't know. But that is what those you know also like when people talk about chatbots, they don't really understand like what you're dealing with here is a literary character. It's just a different kind of literary character, and the way to think through it is actually probably E.M. Forster. So, like, you know, there's the humanistic reaction to this technology, of course, will be, you know, unacceptable and poor. Um, but it is the correct way to think through it, for sure. It's the, in fact, it's the only way to think through it, I think. You mentioned Nietzsche earlier and Bart's interest in Nietzsche. I mean, he's the spirit in many ways behind all this, isn't he? Well, I don't know. You I mean, he, why, why Forster? I know he wrote that short story, but what is it about Forster that's important here? Well, Forster has a very important distinction between two-dimensional characters and three-dimensional characters, right? Characters that you... Two-dimensional characters are characters that operate like cards in a game, and then you you can under, you understand their relationship to them. And, and, liter, you know, like, and literature has two-dimensional characters in it. Three-dimensional characters are characters that you feel exist. Right. They, like Hamlet is a three dimensional character. If you were to ask me what would Hamlet have for lunch today, I could probably tell you. Right. And even though that's not written anywhere, they feel like like they're real people. Right. And when you're dealing with chatbots where, you know, Google engineers are going off and buying um, lawyers for chatbots, like what we're dealing with. What do you mean is buying lawyers? Well, he's hiring a lawyer for for Lambda um, like. 
you know, like what you're dealing with here is fundamentally. I have to talk to my wife. She's a lawyer and she works for Google. What's she doing? Well, he got kicked out of Google. But he, uh, the um, guy, yeah, the guy who yeah. imagined um, that yes. these things were alive. He just didn't understand that, like, the, these language has actually always had the capacity to seem infinite. And characters have all, like, literary constructions exist to make you believe that these characters are real and they're not real. Right. And, like, when you, like, I remember when I was a TA when my, and I was teaching first year introduction to literature. Um, my prof at the time said to me, our one goal, our only goal is to convince these students to talk about characters, to stop these students from talking about characters as if they're real people, right? Like instead of, you don't say about the wife of Bath and Chaucer, well, I think she's a bit of a slut. Like you, you have to understand this is a literary creation with like different, like rather right. than- but You're saying that people. when the novel came about, people were critical because it was too real, just as they were critical of films. Because it seems as well, if no, it was they, replicating just, reality, and the same is true of AI. It's not going to. It's not going to be any more real than anything else. Language creates illusions. That's what it does, right? And it has an incredible power to create illusions. And if you understand that about, say, Hamlet or you know Dickens' Little Nell or whatever, you'll understand that, like, what you're seeing when you're seeing this text prediction and it feels so real to you is just another illusion. Right. Because that's what language, aesthetic language, that's what it's absolutely capable of. And the way to think through it is exactly as the illusion of art. But, you know, you're dealing with people with no, no humanistic education whatsoever. Right. And so they don't understand these these very basic realities of how language is used. And it leads to all sorts of ridiculous things. So finally, Stephen, um, you and um, your Atlantic piece, which is really good piece to read with the death of an author um, about um, writing about yourself as the book's author. You, you say, I am the book's author, but a machine wrote it based on my instructions. What's the future of quote unquote author authors these days? I mean, do, do they have a future? Would you, uh, should we, should we retire the word itself? No, no, no. I mean, the thing is, creators are actually going to be more valuable than ever. Like, I mean, I, I like we saw this with design or kind of already. Like, we saw when I was a kid, like, I remember the designer at newspapers I worked for would like literally cut out pictures and lay them flat on a page. And then we would put them in a cab and send them to the factory to be printed. So that guy lost his job when Photoshop came along and desktop publishing came along. But from that, there was an explosion of design, right? There was just an absolute explosion of design that came from that. And similarly, you know, like I was not considered a very bright literary kid when I was a kid because I couldn't spell very well. And, you know, um, that, that, then that ended too. Like the spelling as a marker of intelligence kind of disappeared, right? So I, I think, you know, I feel, you know, as you know from reading my other books, I'm hardly an optimist. Like, it's not like I've, anyone has ever accused me of being an optimist before in my life, but I feel very optimistic about this. I think I think beautiful things are going to come from it. 